name is Michael Sturrock. I'm Head of Public Affairs at the DMA. Uh, today uh, we are back online. It's been a little while since we've had a podcast, but nonetheless we are back with a very, very special guest indeed. Uh, the Deputy Speaker of the House of Lords, that is the Right Honourable Ian Duncan, Baron Duncan of Springbank. Is that correct? Close enough. What's, what, what, is, what should it be? Well, I'm always very careful in using the Right Honourable bit. Technically mm. all Lords are Right Honourable, but Privy councillors really use that bit, um, ah. and I'm not alone in being the deputy speaker. There's more than one of me. Mm-hmm. But apart from that, spot on. Fair enough. Good. Oh well, getting getting going. Um, I read that when originally getting your uh, your name being ennobled, is it? You asked to be Lord of Brussels. Is that correct? And why why did you ask that? Comedy value, probably. Mm-hmm. I thought it would amuse people. Um, there is a precedent for people picking titles out with their land. Uh, apparently Lord Archer wanted to be Lord Archer of Armenia, which um, ah. was vetoed uh, for many different reasons. Uh, but in the end, um, um, Garter, King of Arms, said I could probably take it if the Belgians conceded I'd won a major military victory there. Ah, and, and, I, and have you? I felt that was probably a bit unlikely to be conceded by the Belgians, okay. so um, I settled for the um, Springbank, which was Springbank Road, the council scheme in Aylith, where I was brought up, where my family were from. Mm. Does that make you... Uh, you know, in terms of geographical areas over which lords preside, I imagine that's relatively small on the scale. I think it's the smallest ever. <laughs> does, does that make? Does that actually make Springbank Road a, 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 a baronetcy? Or uh, I don't think it confers uh, it? upon that council scheme any great privileges. I'm afraid. <laughs> um, I think, if anything, <laughs> it's just amused me because, again, my grandparents moved to Springbank Road from the farm basically in 1934. Uh, my mother. Our sister and brother were both born in Springbank Road. My mother's first house was there. My brother was born there. So I'm the third generation in the same council scheme, Springbank. Very good. So not only have you been, or are you currently, the Deputy Speaker in the House of Lords, you have been the Under Secretary of State for Scotland, or just previously to this, you were the Climate Change Minister um, and a Minister in the Business Department in the House of Lords. Then you were Under Secretary of State for Northern Ireland before that and Scotland at the same time. Yes. And before that, Wales as well? Yes. Although ah. I, don't, I don't think the Welsh noticed I was their Under Secretary of State. Right. They, uh, it says in one of your bios online that you are currently the only person to serve in all three of the roles, uh, in the ministerial roles in the devolved nations' offices of the UK government. Yes. Uh, um, I think it's quite hard to do that. I, I'm not quite sure. It's going to sound odd, but um, they made me the Under Secretary of State for Wales, and I. They already had an Undersecretary of State in the Commons, so I, I didn't have an awful lot to do, and as a consequence, didn't do an awful lot. Mm. Um, and then they made me Undersecretary of State for Northern Ireland, when there was an awful lot to do. And by the end of my time, I'd say it was 99% Northern Ireland, 1% Scotland, or very nearly that proportion. Wow. Mm. And which uh, of the three has been your, your favourite so far? The most challenging and demanding was Northern Ireland, mm. by uh, a country mile. And you were there during the... I should say, by the way, we are currently, given COVID restrictions, we are currently being... Uh, well, interrupted by a small child, but currently sitting outside on the street um, uh, in Edinburgh on, on Coburn Street, which is at about a 30 degree angle, so I'm slightly down the hill, um, uh, recording outside for distance purposes and uh, also audio because it's quite loud inside. Um, but yeah, you, you were Under Secretary of State for Northern Ireland really during the crux of the Brexit negotiations. Yes, the Northern Ireland Protocol. Mm. and. I was tasked with leading on same-sex marriage in Northern Ireland, abortion in Northern Ireland, 
um, victims' pensions in Northern Ireland. I got all the kind of the, the challenging ones too, because mm. they all began their journey in the Lords because there was so much going on about reestablishing the executive and the Commons. So, in the division of spoils, um, I got the more challenging social ones. And I'll, I'll come back to a lot of that in a second. But we've seen in recent weeks the internal market bill, which at least theoretically. I mean, it rips up a lot of your work as, as the Under Secretary of State for Northern Ireland that says that, or some of the, your colleagues in the Lords, those who were previously on the Supreme Court, have said it's completely under, undermines and underwrites everything that's been done in the Northern Ireland Protocol and the withdrawal agreement. What's, what do you make of that? It's a real challenge. It does. One of the reasons I haven't spoken in the Lords on this issue is I find it very difficult to reconcile what I was. Um, what I did during my time as Under Secretary with what is now the situation. I understand the challenges the government faced if indeed the EU were threatening to create issues between the mainland UK and Northern Ireland. I can understand that. I can understand why they could have used the protocol to challenge it because it's got that clause in it. You could literally have taken them to the courts yourself to say, now then, now then, you are uh, in breach of the protocol which we have both signed and so forth. To have chosen the route they did wasn't the most sensible of routes to pick. And I think they'd have been far better if they were minded to use it as a, a negotiating device to have said, you know, we shall take you to the courts using the very protocol that we have both signed because we both agreed there shall be no interference in this area and the apparent threats that have been made should be addressed through that very protocol. That's how it was written and designed. So that's the best way of doing it. If it's a negotiating device, as some people have claimed, and it will be withdrawn at a certain point, well, there isn't much time left, and I'm wondering if it was worth the effort in terms of our global mm. reputation. And when, when you look at the size of the majorities voting against it in the Lords, and a significant number of them being former frontbench cabinet ministers and leaders of the Conservative Party, it certainly suggests they haven't quite squared off their own supporters with this approach. Mm. So just to our, our kind of run through the an overview of the practicalities of it um, just for those who might not have been uh, embedded in the withdrawal agreement and the internal market bill but um, so pre previously the way to resolve a dispute between the UK and Europe um, in uh, well, regarding trade for example in Northern Ireland would have been to resort to this alternative dispute me uh, resolution mechanism and the internal market bill at least one of the things it does basically gives or at least gives the UK asserts the right rather to change aspects of this without going to this dispute resolution yes I mean the aspect pro the protocol was designed to take account of these potential issues um, and to allow both sides to invoke the protocol as a means of seeking resolution uh, this uh, been widely interpreted as a device of, or as a negotiating ploy um, it's not got long to work. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm, I wait with interest to see what does happen next. I mean, and you're right, it doesn't, the UK does not breach international law by its adoption, but it empowers the UK to pursue a line which could then run counter to its previous agreement, which in itself would therefore be the problem. Um, <clears throat> if it never did it, it wouldn't have breached international law. It would have just created the provision to allow it to uh, change mm -hmm. uh, a, a, a bilateral uh, agreement. So it could be a tool, a negotiating tool, um, and we've seen, we saw certainly after Theresa May was Prime Minister that a lot of people said she wasn't committed enough to the idea um, of all, all or nothing. She was too kind of compromising. She wouldn't 
completely go up against it, run run it down to the wire, and push the Europeans as much as possible. Whereas, arguably, with uh, with the administration now, with Boris Johnson's government, they at least could be using this technique, the internal market bill being one of the one of the tools to do this, of really trying to as a very kind of accusatory, a very uh, affront, not accusatory, uh, um, an affronting tactic of negotiation rather than something more. Um, uh, collegiate, I guess. Do you think, is that the way you read it? I, I think we have to take a little step back in time. <clears throat> As we now look at Theresa May, what she sought to do was, by consensus, find that sweet spot that satisfied everybody. <clears throat> and she managed to find, let's call it the anti-sweet spot that satisfied nobody. Yet the curious thing is we look back, it's what everyone, people, what people are now really looking for is broadly exactly what she offered. And the great ir irony in all of this is all the parties that voted consistently against what she was offering are all the parties now demanding the very thing she advocated be done. Mm. So there, there ought to be a certain shaking of heads and realisation among certain individuals that they could have had broadly what they wanted um, some time ago if they'd been amenable to the, the more consensual approach adopted by the Prime Minister at the time. As a consequence of their confrontational approach, uh, an election was held and... Um, resoundingly won by the Conservative Party under Boris Johnson. It's hardly surprising, empowered as he was by such a substantial majority, he did not feel free to push for the agreement he might himself have negotiated had he been in power at the time uh, when this was being knocked together uh, immediately after the referendum. But right now, I think that the challenge is a simple one, that this is a potential problem, but it isn't a problem right now. The bigger problem is the absence of an agreement. Uh, and that, until it is resolved, will be the big issue. Whether indeed the UK is in breach of international law in due course will be interesting, but if there is no agreement, I suspect the man in the street will be a little more concerned with other things uh, before we get to anything approaching that. If the ultimate agreement, or the ultimate aim of these Brexit negotiations, presumably, is to get a deal, how should it have been done from the outset? thinking back to Theresa May triggering Article 50 in March 2017, was it, I think? Mm. That always, you know, arguably that started, there was a, at least the first domino in kind of unnecessary pressurised timeline, I suppose, was what what should have been done from the start? And it's an interesting, you know, counterfactual, but in truth, I mean, I kept a diary just so that I could work out what was actually going on at the time. We're, we're guilty of examining the past through the lens of today. So we might recall that at that time the demands within the Commons from um, others that Article 50 be triggered immediately were really strong from a whole range of parties to invoke to begin the journey. With hindsight one could argue that Article 50 has set a timeline which has been which has proven to be challenging and frankly was missed on a number of occasions but the rationale behind it was very clear. Um, so given everything that we've we've just been talking about um uh, yes there obviously there are, there are pros and pros and cons for and against you didn't you say you didn't see brexit coming tomorrow if there was a collective amnesia in the uk uh, would you rejoin the eu and then the sort of second version of that question being if you know events had carried on as they have would you join the eu tomorrow it's a difficult one i don't think we can lightly set aside a referendum result um, you know, of the referendums we've had, I've won one and lost one. Um, and I don't think it's a good way to resolve an issue, so I'm, I'm against referendums, frankly. But 
I think the answer here would have been probably to, to rejoin EFTA. We were a member of EFTA way back in the day, in fact, one of the founder members of EFTA. But the, the common market is broadly what people recognise and want. And it's the very thing that would protect the jobs, that would protect the, 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 the trade, that would protect the, the various elements that are, people have now recognised are very hard to achieve by other means. And I think that might have been useful. And I think it could still be useful uh, for us. I think the problem we face with some of the bigger issues of, of, of genuine EU membership is that people are on. Very few people actually pay a lot of heed to the detail of EU membership, if I'm being honest. But when they hear about certain elements, they tend not to like it. So, you know, when you actually go into the details of the common fisheries policy, and I used to work in fisheries, it's impossible to justify it. It's, it's wrong at, at, at heart. The common agricultural policy is a peculiarity. I mean, the only two bits of the farming sector that broadly are profitable would be, um, well, pigs and poultry. You know, the very two parts are not subsidised by the CAP. The bits that are subsidised are the bits that don't make any money. There are so many inherent flaws in the way these policies have been created that, you know, stepping straight back into them might not be exactly the most sensible thing to do. And I said that as an MEP who had to try and navigate and negotiate his way through them. So, you know, there are great opportunities in the EU, but actually at heart it's, it can be very slow moving to actually embrace the good stuff. Yeah, we certainly have realised that one of the things we are as an organisation working on is new e-privacy directive that is going through the commission um, and trying to go around several times now and just this week they have decided to bin all the work that was being done in the, the German presidency and go back to the, the draft that was um, or as the draft was 18 months ago now so certainly well quite obviously there, there are disadvantages in terms of bureaucracy and indeed just you know if you start something wrong it's very difficult yeah. to correct it is that just an inherent byproduct of international I mean I think the fact that the EU works at all is a tribute to the talent of the individuals in play I mean more often than not it's the ultimate compromise that bring about the the policies that we live through and some of those are when you look at them a bit, it's a bit like um, the things you should never see being made your laws and your sausages mm. and actually somebody who's sat in those rooms where the EU laws are made, some of the compromises you make are shocking. But they have to be made to get the support in order to move things through. So somebody gets a bit of this, somebody gets a bit of that. And at the end, everyone's unhappy, but no one's more unhappy than each other. So it just about works. Um, <laughs> What's your most shocking compromise? Ooh, probably couldn't say that out loud, but it involved, <laughs> of, it involved an awful lot of money being given to a particular country to do something which wasn't very nice to do. Right. You, know, you can try and work that back. You well, I think, you know, people might assume worse than what you probably intended. Yeah, That's certainly hope so. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, well, we've done, done the past now. Looking forward, I don't think you disagree that we're not in the best position at the moment. Um, what, what's going to happen? Are we going to get a deal? Why or why not? I think we'll get a deal. I think we'll get a deal because actually it'd be bonkers not to have a deal. And for all the EU can say that, you know, they don't need the UK, actually, we're its biggest market. Now, okay, they're our biggest market, so it's mutually assured destruction, but it's very rare that you say, well, we don't need our biggest market anymore. So somewhere along the line, common sense should prevail and a deal will be done. Will it be as good as we've got now? Well, I suspect not, but then it won't be as good for the other side either. It'll be, it'll be a compromise and the EU is very good at brokering them. And as I said before, as long as everyone's mutually unhappy, it's usually enough. I think we need to see Brexit completed in order for the UK to heal. Um, I would be, again, counselling strongly against any more referendums for lots of different reasons. But I imagine that others would disagree with me. And equally, one of the curious things that COVID has done is it has shrouded a number of the bigger problems inside um, a... a, a well, a, a clearly different challenge. So 
If we think back to the beginning of this time last year, farmers would be saying, how can we possibly harvest the crops without the EU workers coming across to work in the fields? And by the time that problem would have confronted us, we didn't have any EU workers coming across to work in the fields. We were in the middle of a COVID crisis. So we had, again, what would have been the first you know, declarative statement of Brexit has caused a problem. Actually, they found a solution to that because it was a COVID problem, not a Brexit problem. So we are in this kind of curious situation where before we would have said, you know, the UK's economy is going to be in a bit of trouble with Brexit. But the scale of the debt now in order to cope with COVID is so unbelievably high. And it's true for all the nations of the EU. But actually, we're now looking at this as a kind of a, almost a distraction, in fact. Um, and, and so I think a lot of the things that would have been much more shocking have been put in context by COVID, which has been shocking for all and deeply painful. Mm. Is the, are we set for another, well, I guess decade might not even scrape the surface, but uh, if government cuts, I mean, assuming your party gets gets into government for the next, next while, would that be the normal course of action? I mean, I think the government, all governments in Europe are confronted by two options. One, cut, two, tax. I suppose three, borrow, but I mean, that's just a future problem. This is going to be a terrible time for, let's say, Western democracies, because there is no easy out from this. There is no magic money tree. We've borrowed an extraordinary amount of money, but then so is France, so is Germany. The indebtedness that we're witnessing now is extraordinary. The generation is to come will have to find some way or other of paying for it. Yes, there may well be cuts, and the cuts will be unpleasant. Uh, and you know, this is true of everyone. You know, this is not a Brexit um, penalty. This is a COVID penalty. Um, I think the government's done the right thing in, 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 in trying to preserve through the furlough scheme the various jobs, but the the cost will be paid for, uh, and it's a question of how long it takes to pay for it, and who does the paying. So uh, I'm going to touch on another thing now, given that we are in Scotland, where there's another uh, potentially huge monumental constitutional issue on the horizon once more, um, issue of a Scottish independence referendum. Noting what you just said about Brexit hailing in comparison and uh, to, to the kind of challenge that we have at the moment, is independence along the same lines? It might just be something that happens and ultimately it may sort of cause economic blips one way or the other but long term it doesn't really have an effect on where we are as a you know, well I guess Western society at the moment mm, I would see it differently I think if you're confronted by the Brexit conundrum that we're living through and COVID at the same time and all of the horrors with it embracing more horrors may well be just too much for Scots to, to take so I think the real test will come when people start to look at the detail of independence. And I think 2014 was interesting because it, it began that journey. But a lot of people are still saying, well, you know, it can't be any worse than being uh, inside the UK. And you think, oh, yes, it can. Oh, my word. Yes, it can. So the, the glibness with which certain people say, you know, with one bound we shall be free and it will all be fine. And yes, there'll be some troubles in the trials and tribulations, but it'll all be okay. And you think, hmm, okay. But for about a generation, uh, it'll be anything but okay. Um, and I say that as someone who can recognise when people want to find different ways of doing things, when you know, Boris is certainly not popular north of the border. But actually, it would be very difficult, I think, right now, when you start looking at the truth of the situation. It's very easy if you don't. In the same way, it's very easy to talk about Brexit if you don't look at the details of Brexit. But the minute you start looking at the details of it, it becomes much more challenging. And I think 
The question is, and I suppose that this would be the corollary of that, you could argue that you know, in the middle of a COVID crisis, you know, what's another billion here and a billion there, suddenly it's all whatever. But actually, when you're starting to talk about the long-term issues around um, people's pensions, people's investments, um, you know, how benefits are paid, how much money is available, you know, it's going to be tough enough to cope with the aftermath of COVID. Throw into that the aftermath of Brexit, throw into that potentially if, they, if the referendum were to go um, toward an independence model, Scotland would be a remarkably um, difficult place to be for probably the rest of my life. And in the, in the interest of balance and in no way betraying my own political preferences one way or the other, uh, there, there are of course some people who don't necessarily think it would be a, a horror. And, uh, no, and that, what the, what the That's why it becomes interesting, because I, I come back to the notion of the truth. This is why, <laughs> and, and I, I, I'm big pals with Andrew Wilson, we, we mm. argue regularly about some of these things. And his policy of sterilisation is interesting, but from what I've seen of the public debate around it, very few people understand it. Very few people get it. I've, I've watched a number of uh, ministers or would-be ministers tweeting about it as if, you know, we can have sterilisation. Oh, and we can be a member of the EU. You think, well, you're going to have to talk me through that because I can't see how that fits together. So uh, there are a whole lot of elements, and I come back to truth, where you really do need to bottom that out because it's very easy to say, once we've got that and once we've got this, it's fine. It's a bit that, that old cliche about when you ask um, different professions how they would um, you know, create a, a, a boat or how they would escape from a desert island or whatever it was. And, you know, the carpenters say they would cut down trees and so on. And you ask the economists and they simply say, uh, well, let's assume you've got a boat. <laughs> you know, it's that kind of notion. It's, let's assume that's all sorted and it'll be fine. Well, let's not all assume that bit's sorted because that's as fiddly as any other bit. So in the interest of balance, I, I like to think I am relatively balanced. I, mean, I, I did go to Catalonia. I did lead the delegation to oversee the referendum. I did think they deserved a referendum. In fact, the, the, the folk hero of the Catalans wasn't Alex Salmon. It was actually David Cameron, who was seen as the, the wise statesman who recognised the importance of having a referendum to resolve these bigger issues. Uh, so I, in that context, I have no difficulty in, 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 in exploring them when you start to get into the detail. But some of these big issues seem to be remarkably big, and a lot of the solutions I had a neighbour of mine on, on, on Facebook telling me that, no, no, once we are independent, pensions will go up. I thought, you're going to have to talk me through the detail of that again. Mm. I'm not quite sure I understand how they're going to go up. And if you're saying it to pensioners now, well, they'll be dead by then. <laughs> it's not going to go up anytime soon. I would, uh, you know, just, just because a lot of people, or even most people, don't understand the detail doesn't necessarily mean there's not a way of doing it, and you don't, you know, I would, I would say most people don't understand most aspects of most types of policies. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't try and help them understand. That's true. So, so then let me let me levy this challenge. If we had just voted, we as in Scotland just voted for independence, how would you do it? How would I do it? Mm. What? How would I want? How would you go about it? What would be your What would be your first recommendation? Probably have another referendum. I think it's one of these interesting things. I thought John Major's intervention was, you know, comedically interesting. The notion of two, mm. um, and there is a truth in that, which is, you know, it's fine to be the romantic nationalist and to vote for what you see as the freedom for your land, and, that, and you can do that by all means. And then once you get the details set out and you begin to work out exactly what it will look like, then it's a different question. It's no longer the romance; it's actually the practicalities of it. So. I think it was quite right in the sense that the two, the way you would approach those would be different. But I think there's a more fundamental question, and this is the real failure of the unionists. What's the alternative? Because the status quo clearly isn't it. People are not happy with the status quo. 
And you could argue, of course, that 2017 showed the Tories were not that unpopular. Remarkably, they knocked out Angus Robertson, for example, in Murray. Uh, and you know, Murray is still Tory. So, I mean, they went from having only one MP in the whole country to suddenly having 13. So the, 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 there's a movement uh, in Scotland around politics. But I think the, the, the UK's got to have a big think. What, what is the future meant to be? And there are now concerns, mostly in the north of England, I think, in terms of where the real political issues lie, because truthfully, they have got the fuzzy end of the lolly. They are not with a parliament in place. They don't have the tax raising and tax varying powers. They don't have any of the legislative competences that Wales has or Scotland has. And yet they also have to look to London to solve these problems. And so there are lots of issues now about this that could be addressed by a bold government considering the broader constitutional issues and working out what the future should be. And I think that will be the test for the government now. In the middle of a COVID crisis, in the middle of uh, the Brexit negotiations, what should the UK now look like? And how shall it get there? Because if it can't get that right, then there's every possibility that different parts of the UK will become disgruntled to the point at which they find they want to plot a different course, irrespective of how much it costs them. So, <clears throat> in terms of you and your party's role going forward, um, although are you technically, in, did you have to resign from the party if you're a, a, a um, deputy, deputy speaker? No, only the speaker has to be um, apolitical. I ah. get to uh, retain my affiliation. I think I paid my subs. <laughs> So will you be championing this uh, well, alternative route to uh, Devo Max, federalism, whatever this kind of hybrid well, I've, is? I've written a, an article for the Times that looks at some of these bits, very kind of superficially, I suppose, because it's only 500 words. But there's more thinking for me to do, so I understand it. Um, but I do think we need to be moving toward a proto-federalist approach. I don't think the institutions that we currently have are adequate for the time or for the challenges that we have now lived through or are living through. And you know, we need to think about the institutions that work and the ones that don't work. And I would argue, as someone who was a clerk in the Scottish Parliament, you know, it's only what twenty plus years old, but it's not working that well either. And that's you know one of these things where people are not really paying attention to exactly how it works or it doesn't work. And I've listened to the First Minister talk about how important it is to listen to the voice of the Scottish Parliament, right up until it's something she doesn't like, and then it's like, well, that's all very important, but that's not on this issue. There need to be you know, reflections on these things. And I think, I mean, as a member of the House of Lords, you know, there is a possibility of a Bundesrat in the UK. You could see uh, a federal second chamber with regional representation drawn from you know, not just the four nations, but actually from you know, all parts of the UK you could easily see a very different place. And if you had that, with different representation and, and you know, a different way of doing things and, and removing some of the anomalies that the Lords themselves have, you may actually have a better model to deal with some of these bigger issues confronting the nation. Why hasn't it been done yet? <sighs> well, if I was being frank, um, Lords reform is like juggling shit wearing white gloves. The gloves get more shitty, the shit does not get more glovey. <laughs> so people tend not to want to get involved in that, I think would be my analysis. That line was cut from the Times, I'm not sure. Oh, I see, okay. Uh, but I, I think, it, in simple terms, it's a fiddly thing to try and do, and unless you really want to you know, spend the rest of your life fiddling with it, maybe it's not the, the, the top of anyone's priority mm. list. In truth, I think it's time has come, however, and I think we're seeing that through the questions of our devolution, the questions over its workability, the problems in the north of England. We're seeing a whole range of tests for which our current arrangements are not adequate. So what is the solution? And until we can articulate that solution, uh, and until we can deliver for what people actually want, I think we run the risk of, again, perennial demands for referendums to create independence for this bit or that bit or another bit. 
Are you hopeful about the path forward? I think I think pausing surely indicates. Well, it's. I think there are opportunities that will emerge. I think COVID is showing us how the world can be different. I think we've lived through a long time when everything had to be within 50 yards of the Prime Minister in London. But we discovered, no, it doesn't. You could have a far more decentralised approach to government. The civil service doesn't have to be 10 yards from the minister's desk. And suddenly you could have a completely different arrangement in the UK. Moving away from the high-cost rents of London, you could have people living in the delightful parts of, name your delightful region, whether it be the borders of Scotland, whether it be Murray, wherever it happens to be. And if people can do that, the country can look different. So there are opportunities in there. But we've got political trials, and we need to make sure that our institutions are fit for purpose. We need to consider what they should be. And I think the, the silver lining of the darker cloud of potentially the Brexit world and COVID and, and, and the devolution challenges, simply put, there are opportunities to think afresh, to see different ways of doing it, and to consider our relationship with each other, with our European neighbours, with the, the wider globe, and, and how we can tackle bigger problems like climate change or, or technology advances or any of the other big things that we've often kind of overlooked as we consider our terrible troubles here at home. Fantastic. I was going to... Um I, th I think we've just d discussed so much. I was going to move on to some business questions, being that you have a, being you are a former minister in the business department. But I'll, I'll, uh, I'll relieve you of that duty so far, and we'll have you back for a second time. Where I'll grill you on all the, um, all the ways the government is uh, helping and uh, not so much helping the business community, perhaps. Um, great. Well, uh, Lord Duncan, thank you very much for being on the DMA Politics podcast, and uh, we hope to meet you soon.